and welcome to School Psych Podcast. We're super happy tonight to um, have a special education lawyer chatting with us. I know that our jobs are often uh, very contingent upon uh, legal cases and, and, and whatnot for best practices, and we want to make sure that we're doing right legally as well as right by children. So I'm so happy and excited to have um, him with us tonight. But first off, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist currently working in Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. Um, we really can't wait to hear your questions, thoughts, experiences, ideas tonight. So please feel free to post those questions on um, either Facebook page, the School Psych Podcast page on Facebook, on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast, or right alongside this video as you're watching. We're look, looking forward to hearing from you, and I will definitely be sharing out those questions in our conversation tonight. And here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State. Uh, we did a little poll to get some participation on what you guys were interested in, what um, legal issues you had going on um, where you work, and we had a huge response. We had 288 respondents in the poll. 22% responded to the qualification of LD as a significant legal issue um, that they were dealing with. We had a lot of other interests, though, in um, agreement and dis disagreement on adequate process. Um, agreement on eligibility, write, writing legally defensible reports, and um, school discipline, manifestation determinations. Like, there's lots of just lots of legal issues that school psychs out there are dealing with. So, I'd like to welcome our SPED special ed lawyer, Lloyd Donner, to uh, to our um, podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Lloyd. Um, and you are an expert in what we have to deal with. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I'm really very excited to be here. And I, I really want to thank all of you, Rachel, Rebecca, Nana, um, because I really I love being able to give these talks, uh, especially to people on the sort of, I don't want to say other side, but on the school district side, because um, I, I am a special education attorney. Uh, I concentrate, I, well, I should say, I represent families of children with special needs. Um, I do a lot of work in New York City. Uh, and also I do a lot of work actually uh, for sort of, sort of the underrepresented uh, children in New York City who really don't have the finances uh, to be able to support the needs that they need that they have. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation and honestly kind of learning from you guys as well uh, because I am you know special education attorney so I know the legal aspects of it but obviously I don't know so much about this the psychological experts that I am not. So I'm very much looking forward to this. Awesome. Um, and so I know that, you know, like Anna said, we had that poll and we got a lot of interest. So um, I'm thinking we'll start off um, maybe talking about some of some of those top things on the poll, which was um, like the LD and, and you know, progress. Um, I know our, New York is an RTI state. Um, so we can start off with that, but I'm really hoping that people are gonna um, be chiming in with questions and topics um, as Rebecca talked uh, about how to participate and whatnot, and we'll just kind of take it from there and see what you guys want to talk about. Okay. Yeah, so can you tell us, Lloyd, about um, when a family comes to you or when a child is brought to you, as you said, who is um, maybe not receiving the services that um, their the child's advocate or family b believes they should get, what is, what is that process? Are, are parents seeking you out? Are you, um, are you close to different school districts? How do you get clients? Uh, well, that's a good question. It depends. Um, honestly, a lot of times the sort of paying clients, the, the clients or parents who have more means, who are, live more in the suburbs, uh, they usually will seek me out or you know, other special education attorneys because they, they usually see that there's something going on with their child. Uh, they, they're the first ones who see it. Uh, and then they go to their, the teachers and they ask what can be done. And usually they feel like whatever is getting done is not enough. Uh, and they feel like things are just slipping away. So, that, so they're the people who actually come to me. Um, but now I try to reach out to parents who aren't quite as, as savvy. Um, like I said, in New York city, there's a lot, um, there are, I believe over a million children in New York city who are in the, in the schools and something like 212,000 have IEPs. 
Um, those are the kids who have IEPs. So I try to reach out to them in different ways. I go to different uh, back-to-school events, um, churches, synagogues, and try to make my presence known and try to speak to them and know where they are because they're less likely to come to me because a lot of times they just don't understand what their children are entitled to. Um, so that's kind of like a, a dual approach that I have. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think it's interesting that from our poll, our respondents, school psychs, um, we feel one of the most challenging sort of legal aspects of our role is qualifying um, students with learning disabilities, qualifying versus not. Do you find that that's often a reason that you're called in, that parents or teachers or somebody feels like this child should have qualified or this child is being qualified, yet we don't, we don't think that the um, assessments suggest that they have a learning disability? Do you come in on that end often? Absolutely. So I would say the two biggest things that I get, I get uh, parents who come to me and say that my child has issues, the school doesn't think that they have issues, um, and they're refusing to, to give my child services. I get a lot of that. I get a lot of, and this might be a little bit more surprising, is that I get a lot of parents coming to me saying, my child already has an IEP, is supposed to be getting speech and language and counseling, but my child is not getting what is on the IEP. So I get that quite a lot, where even though they're, they're supposed to get it, they still don't get the services. Um, yeah. That's interesting. And I, I'm not surprised. I mean, you didn't mention, I know, Rebecca, you brought up um, like an evaluation being done and the school thinking that there's a problem, but the parents thinking that no, I, I'm assuming that you're not getting a lot of cases like that because right. the parents seem to hold the cards in. If they don't want services, then they don't have to have services, obviously. So. That's right. And I think that might be a cultural thing. I don't know, because I mean, maybe in certain other areas or different sort of demographic groups, uh, parents might be more averse to having their child labeled mm-hmm. as, as having a disability. Uh, and so that kind of depends. I mean, I do deal, I do have that sometimes where people don't want their kids labeled. Uh, but where I am, they usually don't have as much of an issue. They just want to get their kids services. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I um, guess I am like, consider myself lucky that I haven't um, met someone like you at work <laughs> before. <laughs> um, but, but I, I can see I can see that as a possibility where um, a parent and a school district says the child doesn't seem to be making um, progress or, or um, you know growing in the way that we think that he should be. So let's do an evaluation, and then the parent then says, "Whoa, you're saying that you know you're sort of you're identifying him with these um, different." Um, uh, qualifications for special ed, and I, I don't agree with that label, or I don't want that on his record. Or, but you know, yeah, Rachel, like you said, maybe that's just uh, that doesn't happen as much as I'm imagining it. Too. Um, you yeah. talked too about about the progress. Um, so, as a school psych, I have a hard time. You know, in our I've worked in RTI districts before, and you're setting a goal where you want to see them make this much progress in this many weeks, and um, but sometimes I feel like that goal is kind of arbitrary. We're, we're kind of basing it off of, okay, this is what we would expect a typical peer. Well, how do you define that exactly? And we'll, um, so I would imagine that that comes into play too. Like how, how do you determine, or do you see that a lot as, as a lawyer of, you know, the school thinks that it's sufficient progress, but the parent thinks that it's not. And how do you determine sufficient progress? Uh, well, that's, those are very good questions. Well, the first thing I would say is in regards to the RTI, uh, and, and you're probably going to hear this ad nauseum, but school districts cannot use RTI to deny children special education services. Um, they can be done at the same time. So I actually don't come across that a lot um, where people, where the district is using RTI to delay, uh, although sometimes it can happen. Uh, but what I would tell a parent to do is if they haven't already, if, they, if the child is going through RTI, I would tell them to request an evaluation uh, for special education because that might that that could kind of get rid of the the whole issue of how much progress is being made or not made through RTI uh, if you can find another classification. 
Um, but now, as far as how much progress has to be made, yeah, that's the devil's in the details, as they say, uh, because the way the way the law is uh, down through Rowley, basically, it says that you have to make some progress. Now, what does some progress mean? Well, not to get into too many of the legal details, but um, some some states. Uh, well, the country is divided into what's called circuits, which basically divides states up into 13 groupings. Um, some of the groupings of states have an interpretation of that progress as meaning basically anything more than than trivial progress. Um, that, that's in some of the states. In other states, such as New York, New Jersey, others as well, uh, it has to be meaningful progress. Now, I know these are all kind of like wishy-washy words, but, you know, meaning, we can all agree that meaningful progress is more than, you know, slightly more than trivial progress. Um, and there's actually a Supreme Court case that has come out of Colorado. Uh, what that, that really happened is um, the district said, oh, this child is, you know, he's making progress. He's making slightly more than trivial progress. And, of course, this kid was making, like, barely any progress. Um, and they appealed it to the Supreme Court, and that's being heard this year, uh, this term, to determine whether or not should it be meaningful progress, is it enough to have just slightly more than trivial progress, uh, and depending upon what they come up with, that can have a huge effect on the states. Uh, specifically, it can have a huge effect on states that have that trivial progress thing, like Colorado and Texas. Um, but you're still going to have arguments as to how much progress is enough. Um, usually what I tell people to do is to line up grades and evaluations from year to year. That's the best way to, to really judge progress. Uh, standardized tests really are the best way. So you can see, you know, what is the standard score from one year to the next. And that's really the best way to, to determine progress academically. Um, now, if that's not good enough to make my case, then you can you look to other areas as well. But that's sort of the easiest black and white uh, that you're looking at. Can I ask you, Lloyd, that brings to mind a question for me. In these states or anywhere um, where you're measuring, like, amounts of progress, wouldn't that whole question be resolved if your IEP goals are really trackable? You know, if they're really good goals observable goals, specific observable goals, then you can prove progress or not. And you can prove that you are making progress in the way that you set out to make progress, whether that be we want to make trivial progress this semester or we want to make, right? Right. No, that's true. That's true. Um, but even, and that does have an effect, um, but whether or not uh, children are, are meeting their goals, students are meeting their goals, there's some subjectivity there. I mean, obviously, it's, it's there's be objective, but there's some subjectivity. Uh, so the first thing I go to are the standardized tests, because that's just the easiest thing. You know, if a child is getting help in reading, um, and one year in third grade, they're at the, you know, uh, pick something like the 14th percentile, right? And then the next year, I'm looking at the same test, and they're now at the eighth percentile. Well, that's not progress. And that's the easiest thing. And whether or not you're saying, well, Johnny understands four out of five times that he should do X, Y, and Z, it becomes less, less relevant than the, the real numbers. That's the easiest way to, to really determine it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you don't have that, then you go to the goals as well. But honestly, I don't use the goals as much, to be honest. Um, I think that most of the time on um, the contentious um, situations, you're probably dealing with a kid that's maybe not in the special ed system yet and therefore doesn't have those IEP goals to, to rely upon. That was, yeah, I was going to get, that's exactly right. Because um, a lot of the times you're going to be dealing with, is this child making progress? And if not, then we're going to uh, get him qualified for special education. If he is making progress, then you're not going to be qualified. So that's exactly right. A lot of times that's when it comes into play. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you're looking at the, um, the standardized tests. Um, I mean, when, when we think standardized tests, at least when I do, I think um, like a Woodcock Johnson or a Wyatt or something like that. 
um, and comparing the standard score. So if I saw a standard score, for example, that stayed the same, like say I tested this kid two years ago and they didn't qualify or right. I tested them three years ago and now we're due for reevaluation and we have the same standard scores as we had um, last cycle, I would think that that is meaningful progress because you're still being compared to your same aged peers. I would you know, and sometimes parents want to see an increase in those scores, and I have to try and explain that that would mean that they're actually out, they're making more progress than peers. Right. Well, that, that's actually a very good point. Um, however, legally, if the child stays where they are, like the 15th percentile, they haven't made any progress relative to their peers. They haven't, they've stayed exactly where they are. Sure, maybe their vocabulary has gotten better, but just by aging, your vocabulary is going to get better. Um, but what you need to see is you need to actually see going for 15 to 20, 25%, some sort of progress. If it stays the same, it's not. And where that comes from, it's sort of, you know, it's funny. I, I used to give uh, a talk, and it does, it's not in play anymore, but the No Child Left Behind. Um, and a lot of people have you know, a lot of issues with it, and they say, oh, it's, it's terrible, they have testing, too much testing. Um, but No Child Left Behind was really about de like decreasing the gap. Um, and that was taken into uh, the IDEA. The IDEA incorporated that uh, narrowing the gap. So what that means is that it's not enough for a child to remain at the same level. They need to be having the gap get narrower, excuse me, narrower. Uh, so that means they have to make some progress. So, I mean, if the child's 15% and he's at, you know, the next year he's at 20, 25%, and then the parents are like, yeah, well, my child's still not at grade level. Well, that's too bad. Um, but absolutely, if I had a case where a child was at that 15th percentile and stayed at that percentile, I would be using that for, uh, for the child's case because there is no, that is not considered to be progress. Legal. That's interesting because, yeah, I would look at that and think that you're making a year's worth of growth in a year's time because you're growing with your peers. And if you're growing right. with their, your peers, I would think, okay, you're good, you know? But, um, sure. I see what you're it's that no child left behind thing. Sometimes it could be a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm interested, and maybe we'll get to it because uh, at the later, but um, what you think of the changes coming um, with ESSA um, if those are as positive and hopeful as my sense of them are. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really kind of holding out on that. Um, I, I really, cause I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I, I really can't say, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to have much of an effect on, on New York where I am. I, I really have concerns about states that, that don't really provide as much for their children, for their students. Um, and not that New York is an issue, doesn't have that as well. New York City is awful when it comes to providing services. Um, but the thing is that there are, there's relief. As an attorney, I can come in and, and if I know these, these students, if I can reach them, I can help them. In some of these other states, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult because the states are now going to start setting their own standards. And it's very tempting to just kind of lower the standards uh, and then it makes it more difficult for, for me to argue that a child's not making progress if the expectations are even lower. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. So I'm, I'm kind of uneasy about it, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if maybe we can move in and talk a little bit about um, manifestations because that was another big thing that people um, were curious about and also just what what we can expect as school psychologists at, um, you know, what what should our role be with the manifestations and then I'm also wondering about if things do go due process in any situation, you know, what what are lawyers expecting from school psychs and what are you guys looking for? <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. Well, uh, just to go, and I just have my notes over here as well, so but you see me looking over. Um, basically, the, the one thing I would say, uh, oh, there's several things, but just to kind of quickly go through the, the process, um, districts are not, or schools are not under an obligation to have like one rule fits all. So they really have the, um, they have the ability to judge the unique circumstances on a case-by-case -case basis. So if a district or, or 
a, a psychologist says, well, you know, this is the case and therefore we need to do X, that's really not sure. Uh, I mean, that's not true because you do have um, the ability to, to make you know, decisions. Um, but basically, so uh, in regards to the, uh, the manifestation, as you know, if you have a child who is, it, usually it's some sort of violation of, a, um, uh, of the student code or manual. Uh, if they are put into a alternative setting for more than 10 days, uh, if the child has a disability, they are entitled to what you would call the manifestation determination review. Uh, and then at that point, that's when you have to determine whether the child's behavior is linked to the disability. And I should know, I should know this is also four or four, uh, 504 as well, because you're talking about disability. Mm -hmm. um, although I'm not positive they still call the manifestation determination. They might, but it's, it's very similar. Um, so really, I mean, I, when, I, when I see clients, I tell them with this kind of a situation, you have to be very careful um, because it's a really serious matter. Uh, I tell them, you know, other issues, I, I might just give them some advice and say, you know, just kind of wing and see what happens in the CSE meeting. But in this situation, you really need to have an attorney on the parent side. And the first thing I do is I get all the notes um, and diagnoses and, and notes from the IEPs to really understand the child's um, condition and disability. And then I look at what the, um, the accusations are and what the behavior was. And I really try to combine, take a look at the two and see where there's overlap. Uh, and I'm hoping to see a lot of overlap where it's like, oh, he did this and he has this disability. That makes sense. Um, and then the other thing I do is I bring in an expert as quickly as I can. Um, because if, if the child has ADHD, I want to have a psychologist who is like an expert in ADHD who's going to be able to find links between the behavior and the disability. So that's very important too. So um, that's what you probably, I mean, if it's, if it's done the right way, that's probably what you're going to run into um, is that you're going to have someone on the other side who is an expert in that particular area of, of uh, whatever the, di the diagnosis or disability is. Um, so that's, that's where they're going to say. Uh, and then, of course, after that, I mean, they're going to look at um, if there was an FBA, what the, uh, if there was a BIP in place, was it being followed? Um, and those are all factors as well. Uh, but, I mean, specifically, that, that my job is to, is to link the two and to try to have an expert say that, yeah, oh, this makes total sense. Of course, this child did this, you know. Um, he's got impulse control. So, of course, he threw, you know, a pen into this person's eye or whatever. Um, so, it, it's, that's basically my job is, is to get that link together. Yeah, that's a tough spot for the school psychologist if the school is saying, um, that it's not a manifestation of his disability and the expert is saying, yes, it is, you're kind of stuck. What, what would you, do you have advice for the school psychologist in that example? Well, I mean, if I'm the attorney on the, from the uh, parent side, my advice to you is just to give in to me personally. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's difficult. I mean, honestly, if you're in that position, um, you just have to do your homework. I mean, if you really believe, I mean, you do what's right, obviously, but I mean, if you really don't think there is a, um, a connection, then you need to be able to, to set that out and get that into the record as to why you don't think there's a connection. You want to show that you've really looked at the case, that you've looked at the IEP, um, if there was a behavioral plan in place, um, that it was being followed. You really want to make sure that, that it, on the record, it looks like you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's and did everything you could. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, honestly, I mean, it, it's going to be the CSE that makes the decision anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, a, I mean, a parent hopefully can, or I can hopefully convince uh, whoever's doing the principal or whatever to, to take my side. But I mean, if they have it in their mind that they're not going to, then there's only so much I can do. So then I'm looking to the appeal process. Um, so that's what I'm going to be looking to really set that up uh, and say, okay, well, they didn't really do their job. You know, they didn't have this implemented. They didn't do this. 
Um, so the best thing you could do is just just try to be as methodical uh, as possible. Um, ultimately, that, that's that's the only thing you can really do until you get higher, you know, high above. Mm-hmm. And, and do, does it matter if some of these um, behaviors happen on the bus as opposed to in school or um, like outside of school, but on school property? Does that make a difference in these kinds of hearings? They don't. They don't. Actually, it's interesting you say that because um, districts and schools have a, a very large, uh, I should say, uh, high, a lot of latitude as to what they can look at. So if a child has some sort of behavior, a negative behavior on a bus or on a field trip, the school, it, doesn't, it makes sense, the school can look to, um, to discipline the child. Um, what you may not know is that if something occurs off campus, um, where maybe a child is, um, gets into a fight with another child off the school campus, but that starts coming back onto the school. Maybe there's some cyberbullying going on. Maybe there's um, like intimidation in the schools. Then the school actually has an authority to reach out and look at what happened off campus. Um, so they do have a pretty wide latitude that way. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, my experience with manifestations, um, I've often been, when I was in Texas at least, um, felt that it was a manifestation of the disability and the administration and the school kind of says no and i get overruled and the parent walks out very kind of discouraged and i i have an impulse almost to be like listen parent if you would go and get an attorney or go and get an advocate or you know you you would win this (laughs) kind of puts us like in a hard position there because you don't know what and i'm not sure you know what what is my role there can it probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to go and say hey get an attorney i don't know (laughs) what what do you suggest (laughs) yeah well you know it's hard i I mean do you have tenure or don't you have tenure (laughs) Uh, and i only have jokingly say that because i mean i've spoken to school psychologists um, about issues that, that, you know, students have had. And sometimes I've seen like a deer in the headlights, like they know there's a problem, but because the special education chairperson is very, let's just say has a very controlling personality, they're not going to speak out. They're going to say whatever that special education chairperson says for them to do. Um, and sometimes they'll be like, they'll quietly say, you know, you really should get an attorney. You should get some, someone to get help. Um, so a lot of times it's sort of done, you know, quietly to do that because, you know, people, they're, they're afraid for their jobs and I get it, you know, uh, even if you're not going to get fired, people can make your life very difficult. Uh, if you're a teacher, you you can all of a sudden find out that you're getting classes with, with kids who are a lot more challenging. Um, so a lot of times it, you know, teachers and psychologists would just kind of go behind and be like, you know, you might want to seek some advice from attorney. Because honestly, there isn't so much more you can do anyway. Uh, I mean, you're not going to persuade the administrator to change his or her mind, right? Um, so the only thing at that point you can really do would be to just advise the parent to go somewhere else and get more help. So I think that's probably the best thing to do. Hey, Lloyd, we actually have a question from a viewer that goes back to our earlier conversation about um a qualification for specific learning disabilities. And she said um, that you you mentioned that a site could possibly look at a different manner in which a district can determine SLD. Is there, is, there is case law which determined a district was within their rights by using RTI methodology rather than further investigating SLD via the discrepancy and PSW models. Do you have a case law to support the notion that RTI districts should use additional methodology to explore a specific learning disability? Uh, well, actually, well, first of all, like I was saying before, with, with the RTI, um, you can, as a parent, you can still ask for an evaluation, a special education evaluation. Um, so if that's the case, I mean, the district is going to be forced to evaluate the child anyway um, and see where the child's at. So even with the RTI, uh, that's kind of the issue. Um, now, with the, the severe discrepancy, you know, that's kind of interesting because uh, I was doing a little bit of research on that in a couple of different states. And one of them that popped out was actually Arkansas. 
And they had a very interesting thing where they said that you, the state was allowing districts to use one of three uh, ways for evaluating for SLD. One was the RTI, another one was the specific learning dis um, discrepancy, uh, and then the third was, uh, was probably patterns of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and, and what was interesting is they said to the districts, you can do whichever ones you want, but you can only pick one of them. Now, the reason I say that's interesting is because in the IDEA, it specifically says that you cannot use uh, the discrepancy model. Uh, states cannot force the use of the discrepancy model. And that's for all states, all the United States. So the fact that they're giving individual school districts the option to use just this discrepancy model kind of raised flags for me anyway. Um, the other thing that I would say is that um, in regards to evaluations, you're not supposed to use just one type of evaluation. You're supposed to be using multiple assessments. You're not supposed to rely on any one uh, assessment. So the RTI is just one way of evaluating whether the child is making progress. But what I tell parents to do is, is just get your child evaluated. Get that done. Show me what the numbers are. Show me the evaluation results. Uh, and then we'll go from there because, honestly, the RTI part might just be – it might not be important enough because if I can get the child classified a different way, then I don't care as much about the RTI. I mean, I want the RTI to work. I mean, if you, I'm not an expert when it comes to teaching. So if you find that the child's making progress with it, that's great. Um, but by getting the child special education – services, then it opens the field up. If the RTI doesn't work, you can get additional help here or there. Um, so that, that's the first thing I do is, is I try to get the child evaluated, kind of make an end run around the RTI. Uh, and, it, you know, I just want to also say with the, the specific, no, um, the twice exceptional child, because I know that's come up before. Um, and the uh, the idea of having more than one type of assessment uh, now as you know you might know with the, the twice exceptional child you're talking about a child that usually has um, well often they have autism so they could be very high functioning so their numbers on um, on a Wilcox Johnson could be pretty high um, so very often districts will say well look this child is not doesn't have any issues I mean the child's performing at the you know 60th percentile 70th percentile. Uh, on the Woodcock Johnson, this looks great. I, I, this child doesn't need services, um, and, and a lot of parents have a problem. Like, how do I how do I defend that? Well, is you say, well, you can't just use one uh, assessment, uh, and that's by law. There has to be multiple assessments that are looking at the child developmentally, academically, uh, cognitively. Uh, so, if that one assessment isn't showing that there's a problem, you need to look at other assessments. Or you also have to, when you're looking at the composite assessments, you need to go deeper into that in there, uh, and you have to see what are the the um, this, the uh, smaller classes of um, in the evaluations. Really dig into the numbers because you know you may average things out, and the child is performing very low here, and then they're performing high here, and it averages out, um, and then you miss a lot of the issues that are there. And I see a lot of districts will do that. Specifically, they'll say, oh, this child's doing just fine if you look at it. But if you really get into the subcategories, you see that the child is not doing well in those areas. And you don't want that to be missed. Interesting. So our, our next um, major, our two next major categories of uh, challenges for school psychs out there were um, legally defensible report writing and, and then also followed by, um, okay. well, followed by a lot. So maybe we'll just start <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, what, what's your best advice for a legally defensive, defensible report? What's the best report that you've had to challenge? And do you have an unidentified copy? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, first, look, the, the first thing you want to do, and this is should be pretty obvious, is that, I mean, you want to make sure that the assessments are done by qualified persons, okay, people who are qualified to do the test. That's the first thing I'm going to look at. How many times has this person done the test? 
uh, how familiar are they with it? Um, so that's the first thing you really want to do. Um, you want to um, you want to make sure that you assess all areas of the suspected disability, um, and it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily what you would expect uh, from the disability. So it, you know, if it, maybe if a, a child has um, autism, did you did you look at whether the child has speech and learning issues? Uh, or did you look to see if the child has uh, ED issues? Uh, so I'm, I'm looking to see if that's been complete, uh, if that's been done. I'm looking to see whether you're only relying upon one assessment. Are you only looking at the Woodcock-Johnson? Are you uh, only looking at, you know, one one type of assessment? Or are you bringing other assessments in? Did you do a an observation uh, of the child? Did you um, did you speak with the parents? Did you do whether it's a Connors or a Basque? Uh, did you did you get feedback from them? Um, what else am I looking for? Um, That's making me think that I mean, um, I've heard different things about some psychs are hesitant to write lengthy reports because they feel like there's more that can be nitpicked and <laughs> challenged. And then I've heard also psychs say, no, be as thorough as you can and kind of leave no stone unturned, which is the, which is the best route. <laughs> You're better off being more thorough. <clears throat> you really are because you have to understand because um, you're doing all these assessments, okay? Um, and if, if one of the assessments, like let's say you don't think a child should be, should be classified as having a, needing a special uh, education. You do all these assessments. If you do one assessment that shows that, yeah, this child definitely, need, you know, it really looks like this child needs special education, but you've done 10 others that show that he doesn't. Yeah, I'm going to try to harp on that one that helps me harder because you've got all these others showing otherwise. Um, so I wouldn't really consider, and, and honestly, if you don't do that report as thoroughly, you know, because you're afraid, then I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I'm going to get the child evaluated myself. And again, this is if the child has a representative. I'm going to do the evaluation myself. I'm going to get an expert in, in uh, from the Huntington Learning Center or someplace to do an educational. I'm going to have an OT do it. I'm going to have someone else do a different portion of it. So even if you don't do it, I'm going to have it done anyway. So you're better off. The fact that you do more of it also shows that you are considering um, more, more assessments and you're really taking this seriously and it's not a one size fits all. So it looks a lot better for you to be able to do that. Okay. Those are, those are really good tips. I like, um, I mean, I always, you know, do a, an observation um, just to kind of cover, even if it's an LD thing and there's no, you know, behavior concerns, right. I still want to see how they handle you know, that and document that. But, um, and you brought up outside, you know, that you're going to request, I guess, that independent eval or you're going to get somebody else to, to do an evaluation. So talk to us a little bit about outside evals and what the school's responsibility and our responsibility for considering that and um, using that and recommendations from outside psychs. Sure. Uh, well, by law, you know, if once you do an evaluation, and, and I, should, I should clarify that an evaluation covers all the assessments. So when you do, let's say, an initial evaluation, because uh, I saw someone was asking what's an evaluation, the evaluation isn't the Woodcock-Johnson, okay? The evaluation is the Woodcock-Johnson, the Connors, the, the, OT evalu the OT assessment. These all turn into the evaluation. Uh, so it's not just one. Because once you do your evaluation, the parent has a right to say, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the evaluation. I want to get my an independent, impartial educational evaluation. Uh, you put in a request to the school. Now, at that point, the school has two options. The school can either say, sure, that's fine. We'll give you a list of people you can use. This is, you know, um, or they could say, no, we're not going to give it to you. Um, but the only way they can do that is to actually take the parent to due process. Uh, so the, the burden is really on the schools in that way. So usually they're going to give the, um, uh, allow for this, the IEE. Um, now, once that happens, you know, the parent's going to go wherever they, they deem is best. And, and generally speaking, the, the evaluation they get is probably going to be more favorable to the child. Not always, but probably. 
Um, so then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have the evaluation at the CSE meeting. Um, and legally, you are required to consider any independent evaluation that the parent brings in. So that includes evaluations whether the uh, or whether the parent paid out of pocket for it. You're supposed to consider that evaluation. So if you're sitting with the parent's evaluation and you're sitting with your evaluation, if you want to do things right, you need to at least consider the parent's evaluation. Um, if you don't even discuss it, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something where you're not even considering this other evaluation. Um, because later on in due process, you can say, well, yeah, you know, we looked at it, but we think that ours was correct. And I'm like, all right, well, show me in the minutes where you were actually discussing it. You know, where were you discussing it? You know, okay, that's, you can say that you think yours is better than this, but you still have to look at it. Um, and that's, that's kind of hard to, to say if you haven't even, you know, cracked open the binder on it. Um, so that's, that's kind of um, the advice that I would have with that. So I um, have seen my, my share of outside evaluations, and some of them I've just judged poorly. Um, <laughs> sometimes they give tests that are, like, grossly outdated. Like, you're supposed to stop using a test, like, a year after the new version comes out, and they're giving these really outdated tests, and they're writing these 40-page reports, and it's like, ah. Uh, <laughs> Wait, is this gar It's garbage. <laughs> is this independent, you're saying, or in your district? Yeah independent evaluations that parents like find on their own, you know, people out there who are doing these things. Do you kind of guide parents towards certain evaluators that seem legit? Like I just feel bad sometimes reading these reports that parents paid an arm and a leg for that are 40 pages long that are useless in my opinion. Yeah. I, I usually advise them to go to certain ones that I know that I feel comfortable with. Um, because honestly the, the bad evaluations don't usually cost that much less than the good ones. Um, so I will usually guide them and be like, you know, use one of these people. If they come to me, sometimes they do it themselves. Uh, so it's after uh, they've done it. And then I look at the evaluation and I'm kind of confronted with, well, maybe we need to get another one. And, <laughs> and a parent is only entitled to one to be paid by the district. So that gets a little bit troublesome, unfortunately. But that's mm -hmm. sometimes what you have to deal with, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I've totally been in a, a situation where we've received something like that, a very outdated test, you know, some psychobabble nonsense that's not supported by research. And um, my district ended up taking that and reporting it to the psych board um, and oh. following up with that to make sure that that psych stopped doing um, what they were doing. So <laughs> yeah, that's not helping anyone, certainly. No. <laughs> So we want to talk about um, behavior plans and best practice. Do you have any tips for us? A lot of times we're the ones who are writing these plans. That we might have a some sort of outline that our district provides. We might be kind of winging it. Um, what are your tips for behavior plans? Uh, well, I, honestly, I don't have as many tips for that um, because that tends to be more sort of more your job and more your expert expertise. Um, I mean, basically, the only tips I would really give is that you know, you're starting out, you want to make sure that you have a very thorough um, functional behavioral assessment uh, and really look at all the, the, um, the, the concerns that you see, that the parent sees, um, that the teachers see, and really, and really try to address those issues uh, into some sort of a, um, you know, a BIP with positive interventions. Um, I, that, that's, that's really more about the process uh, mm -hmm. and about what you're doing to, to address the issues and what you're seeing. I don't have too much advice because when it comes to, the, to those plans, a lot of times what I'm dealing with is there wasn't a bit put into place. A child you know, is on the spectrum, has these behavioral issues, and there was no FBA done or no BIP done at all. Um, so I, I come across that a lot. Um, or obviously in the manifestation determination, you'll see that the FBA wasn't adequate enough um, because it just wasn't, it wasn't addressing the behaviors. Uh, there, there isn't too much more I can give for that. I so, mean, so sorry, sort of, um, if you see certain things, maybe do a behavior plan, like you mentioned, you know, manifestation hearings, like if there's a child being violent, 
would you recommend a behavior plan? You know, at some point, oh my being removed yes. from special ed, we would do a behavior plan at some point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you have a, a child who's who's aggressive, and um, I mean, if you're you think he's going to be violent, something else. But I mean, certainly, if you, you're finding the child is aggressive, I mean, you should have that child have an assessment and put into some you know some sort of a plan. Um, because honestly, I mean, well, first of all, the child needs it, right? I mean, you're hoping to you're going to be able to have some intervention. And you know, look, I I don't want a child who is violent, no matter what you do, to go back into the general population. Um, that's not what we're looking for, you know. Um, as <clears throat> as attorneys for parents and for the for the students, we want to do the most that we can to keep children in the least restrictive environment. Um, and there's you guys are psychologists, so you understand that there are behavioral plans that you can put into place that can make it more likely that you can keep a child in a general educational um, setting. Now, if you're doing everything you can and the child is still aggressive and is still violent, well, at that point, we should be looking at a different setting. Um, so I, I want you to be doing that correctly. I, you know, honestly, I mean, I want that to be done because, you know, I, I don't blame children. Um, you know, the children have the issues that they have. So if you do everything you can behaviorally and it's not working, then that setting's not right for the child. And we, you know, we're gonna have to look at a different setting, a different school or whatever it is. So please, you know, do more of that. that, that that's it. I don't like the us versus them when it comes to that, certainly. Yeah, and, and maybe not to throw in an us versus them, but one of the other um, uh, points on the poll that people found frustrating were when they, um, came up with a plan, maybe a behavior plan, and teachers um, didn't follow the recommendations. So in those kinds of cases, when parents are saying there's not adequate progress or you're not, you're not, you're not doing the right thing by my child, but the psych is doing everything they can and the teachers aren't following through, what do you, is there any advice in that kind of situation? What, what do you do for parents in a case like that? Do you, well, what do I do? Well, first yes. of all, if, if I see that the psychologist is doing everything that he or she is doing, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wouldn't hold that against them. If I see the teachers aren't following through with it, well, it's their fault, probably. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I know for a fact is it's not the child's fault. Right. So I'm going to get the child what, what she needs. Uh, so what can you do? There isn't much you can do. I mean, aside from trying to get the teachers to do what they're supposed to do, or going to people above them to say that the teachers aren't following through. And if this happens, you know, quite honestly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us more money. <laughs> not that we should be talking money, uh, but it's going to cost us more services because they're not doing what they should be doing. But there isn't too much else you can do because I'm there for the, for the child. So whether it's psychologist that's doing something wrong, the teacher that's doing something wrong, whatever it is, all I care about is the student getting what's right. So that's what that is, really. Yes, <laughs> I agree. That's a tough one. Trying to get everyone on the team on the same page sometimes is, is tough. But we can do it. <laughs> so do we have any last questions? I'm not seeing um, any questions out here um, on our interweb sites. <laughs> um, you had, uh, you know, one great... Uh, motivational line of advice for your school psychologist friends out there, Lloyd, what might you say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I would say is honestly, j just do what's right for the child. Uh, and it's about the process uh, and it's about doing uh, the full assessments and really trying to get at what the issues the child has or doesn't have. Um, you're going to have people argue with you no matter what, whether it's the administrator saying this child shouldn't get services or the parents who say this child should get services. And the best thing to do, I mean, you're there for the child. So you just want to get to the bottom of whether the child has issues or not. Um, and, and as best you can, try to put the other stuff out of your mind, which is easier said than done, I know. But um, that's really the most that I can ask from you know, the psychologist. Uh, and don't be afraid to ask questions, you know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. So, I mean, honestly, a lot of the issues that, that have come up, I actually have a, 
not to not to um, self promote too much, but uh, I do actually I have a blog where I cover some of these topics. I try to do it in a concise way because it can get kind of crazy to look at it. Um, but I have definitely had things on manifestation um, determinations and um, in, independent um, evaluations and twice exceptional children. I try to make it a fairly brief, but that actually answers a lot of the questions that have come up here. So certainly feel free to take a look at that as well. Can you plug it? What's the website again? Uh, well, actually, my website is specialedlegalinfo.com. Mm -hmm. uh, or on blog as well. What's that? You said there was a blog. Is the blog the website? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, blog, the blog is on the website. And then okay. I also will post on Facebook. You just look up the uh, law offices of Lloyd Donders. Uh, and you'll see my Facebook there, and I, I put up a lot of you know links to my my blog entries as well. So I'm following. <laughs> <laughs> so school psychs by nature, I think we're kind of like thorough type A badasses. I like to think so. So we just need to keep being child centered and keep being thorough and um, and do what's best for the child. And even if it takes more time for us to do it, um, yeah. we'll be doing right in the end sounds like and ask ask questions because i mean it's a lot a, very common for for non-legal people to not know what the laws actually are and you might think one thing when the law you know says something else and you just wouldn't know um so don't be afraid to ask questions if you really want to find out really Great. We do. We just have one question under the gun. Um, if I could squeeze it in it, or just before we wrap up, um, somebody's asking what happens when a child is uh, di diagnosed with anxiety due to the treatment from the one one to one aid, and every time this child has to work with her, he turns aggressive. It sounds like a very complicated and unfortunate situation. Right. Um, well, that's very interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I would I would start by changing the aid. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I mean, honestly, if the child has a one-to-one -one aid um, and he's obviously getting special education, so it's not – we're probably not going to be needing another diagnosis yeah. uh, for a classification for anxiety. Um, but really, I mean, just change change the aid because – Legally, you, you can set yourself up for some liability. Um, that's probably not going to be done by me. Um, but the if the child really starts having you know, a great deal of anxiety due to someone who works at your school, you may have some other legal consequences as well. And um, certainly the child is not going to be making a a adequate academic progress if they have that much of an issue. And they start having anxiety. So it's just bad all over. Yes. Well, thanks for uh, asked, responding to that one. That's a tough one. <laughs> and thank you, thank you so much um, for coming on. And I know that um, we could go on and on and on and keep you here for like five hours with questions. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe one day in the future, we can snag you back and try and convince you to, to do a second episode. We would love that. Absolutely, thank It'd you. Be so my much. pleasure. <laughs> um, and so I just want to mention before we sign off, um, I think it looks like our next podcast is scheduled for 1218 and we're looking to have Dr. Shaw on and, um, speaking about applying evidence-based practices is what's kind of tentatively on the schedule at this point. So we'll be looking forward to that. Um, thank you everybody for participating and thank you again. <laughs> yeah. Thank you Lou, for your hour of legal advice. It was amazing. <laughs> the bill will be in the mail. <laughs> 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 <laughs>